Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we have another mailbag episode for you. All of the questions during this episode were sent in through the contact form on our website or emailed directly to contact at beingwellpodcast.com. If you'd like to submit a question to be answered during a future mailbag, I'll include a link to our contact form in the description of today's episode. Today's episode is going to explore questions related to our ongoing series on Who Am I?, particularly focusing on how we can manage our relationships with challenging people. So to help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. How are you doing? I feel very relaxed, Forrest. So I'll try to, you know, be intense enough to get my job done here. (laughs) I'm sure you'll do fantastic. So our first question has to do with kind of personal relationships and what we can do to manage those more effectively. It is... I have two close relatives I find very challenging. Usually they end up causing a scene in public or at family gatherings, yelling criticisms and grievances that are many years old. They are both unable to hold down steady jobs and depend on financial support from their parents. They both have histories of depression and anxiety. I feel obligated to try and help them, but I can't tolerate their rage when I talk to them, and there's no way to reason with them. I'm also wondering what will happen to them once their parents pass away, as they are in their 70s now. Neither me nor my other relatives want to be financially responsible for them when that happens. Is there anything that can be done, or does it all depend on them gaining insight and deciding to change? So, what you think? (laughs) Well, I think that's it's haunting, first of all. and You can feel into the pain and the poignancy, the pathos here of the situation, right? People don't enter this life, they don't wake up, let's say, on their 17th birthday or their 25th birthday and think to themselves, you know, I really want to be miserable and I really want to cause a lot of trouble for other people. It just sort of develops. And I think also about, I believe, the opening line in Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy that translated into English is essentially, all happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Mm-hmm. In other words, happiness, much as in higher levels of physical health or performance, kind of converges on a standard. When you watch, let's say, young children in a gymnastics program, there's a wide range of skillfulness and ability and form. But you watch gymnasts, let's say, competing in the Olympics, they all look really pretty similar. And it's only these razor sharp differences that create the difference between a gold medal and um, coming in last place. So in terms of this kind of situation, for me, it, the, what to do about it really sorts into different categories. One category is, of course, for the person who's writing in here, what we can do ourselves to reduce the impact on us or those we really care about from problematic others. Also, the category uh, related to ourselves includes how to practice with the emotional reactions that get stirred up really understandably in a situation like this. The person who wrote in is describing of a conflict. On the one hand, being obligated to help. On the other hand, being really aggravated and overwhelmed by the people that this person's trying to help. So take care of yourself in this situation. The more you're in situations that are stressful and difficult, this is a recurring theme, including in our book, Resilient, that as challenges go up, we need to ramp up resources as well. That's one thing. Second thing is, of course, what can we do to influence other people? 
And this gets really interesting, especially in family systems in which sometimes there's a collision between the feeling of obligation or responsibility or the loving desire to help being really big, let's say, but your actual capacity to help is really actually small. Mm -hmm. And how do you balance those? Stephen Covey and his, to me, excellent book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, talked about the difference between the circle of influence and the circle of concern. Mm. And if the circle of concern is really big, but the circle of influence is really small, you're, you're in trouble, right? So it's useful often to do what you can to be realistic about the limits of your influence and find ways through practice and listening to our podcast and through other means to find a place of peace. It might involve disappointment and disenchantment and and a heavy heart, but at bottom, you're at peace with the limits of your influence. Mm, mm -hmm. That's really important. Then in family systems, I want to drop some cool stuff from family systems psychology that I think is really useful and sometimes counterintuitive. So very often what looks from the outside and feels on the inside as a very unpleasant, crazy maker of a situation is maintained in a form of dynamic equilibrium by various factors Mm. and resists change in various ways. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's like scripts. There's a classic thing, games people play, the Mm, book in the mm -hmm. 70s, Byrne, I believe Eric Byrne, uh, scripts. There is a kind of scripted quality. Even though everybody hates the movie they're in, they keep playing the roles that they've cast themselves into. Yeah, we've explored that a little bit in some previous podcast episodes. Yeah, how to step out of these scripts and how to disrupt in a healthy way the equilibrium. So one thing here is to make sure that you yourself, let's say the person in this case who wrote in, is not taking more responsibility than is really appropriate. Mm -hmm. And The opportunity here is to deliberately create vacuums of responsibility for other people to step into. Classic example, if parents, let's say, with their teenagers are always doing all the housework, well, it kind of crowds out opportunities for the teens to step in and do what they need to do. But if, hypothetically, and I've known those who have done this, the parents stop washing the teenager's clothes, after a while, social pressure from some of their friends ew, you kind of smell bad, or something like that, can create uh, opportunities uh, because you've opened the niche of responsibility, in effect, for the teenager to step in. There's a kind of ecology of responsibility. And if we fill the niches of responsibility by overdoing for others, then it, uh, in effect, crowds them out and enables them to be a free rider and to kind of ride along. So in this situation, what pops out for me is the parents. Mm. One of the things that's motivating the person who wrote in is this concern about how these two people who are driving the person crazy, how these two people will support themselves after their parents pass away. Well, the parents have a responsibility there. So if a concern about what will be set up for these two people after the parents die is motivating this person, well, the parents actually are stakeholders here. Mm. So if we let others not take responsibility in ways they ought to, and if we let others 
act as if they're not truly stakeholders when in fact they are, well, that helps perpetuate the equilibrium of the six system in a sense. Six systems resist change. And so it's really useful to think about the factors that maintain them and how these systems defend themselves against change. So one of the things that you're speaking to here is an idea that sometimes inaction of a kind can also be an action. Exactly, Forrest. Yeah. So for example, if you, and you can see this in interactions with one-to-one with other people, or if you're in a group setting where you don't intervene, or you slow down the pace of the interaction. Or for example, one thing I've done with adolescents when I used to see them more often in my office, I would sit on the floor deliberately mm. while they sat on a chair, disrupting the script-like nature. Or if someone is used to being given advice by you, don't give them any advice. For example, just like you're saying, you're, you're kind of, you want to break the script. You want to, you want to shake it up and then see what happens. Mm-hmm. So two points here. One is to really try to clarify who should be responsible and treat them as if they're responsible. In this case, the parents. And also think about the script-like nature of some of the situations that you might find yourself in, including at family gatherings that allow these things to maintain. Yeah, I'm reminded of examples of this inside of my own life where it may or may not come as a surprise to listeners of the podcast, probably not, that I can be a relatively chatty person and I like talking with my friends and I like voicing opinions and I like having kind of a, a, a sense of presence inside of a group with my ideas or whatever it is that I'm sharing. And I wouldn't necessarily say that I was unaware of this when I was younger, but I think that I didn't entirely understand the effect that it had on the group dynamics that I was in. Where I would often have an experience where somebody would raise a question and then no one would say anything. And after five or 10 seconds, I kind of got antsy because it seemed like nobody was saying anything. So I gave a response. And what I eventually realized was that nobody was talking because they knew that I would start talking. Ah. So they didn't feel the need to step in with a idea that they were concerned might be criticized by other people or might be criticized by me, who knows. And instead, they let me constantly be the person who was kind of stepping forward first. Because for many people, stepping forward first is a very risky action. For me, I never really felt that way because... That's my nature and how I was raised and all that good stuff. And so what I started doing is inside of groups, I just started deliberately not talking. Yeah. Where somebody would kind of, unless I was posed a very specific and direct to me question, I just wouldn't talk. I just wouldn't say anything. And what I realized is that after the first or second or third time of doing that, suddenly the conversation around me started flowing much more naturally and I could take the role that I actually preferred, which was as a contributor in a group dynamic, rather than somebody who was just kind of monologuing. So I kind of both put myself in this monologuing position and was put in this monologuing position by the group dynamic. And ironically, none of us really wanted that monologuing position to exist. I would imagine that the people I was in those groups with kind of thought that I wanted it to exist, but I really didn't. I was just filling what I perceived as my role inside of the group. And it was really kind of a very profound await moment for me when I realized that this dynamic was in place and I started actively intervening around it. I think that's so interesting. You, in effect, pulled out 
yeah. of the niche of responsibility, mm-hmm. in effect, in, in the ecosystem, which then opened it up mm-hmm. for other little creatures to, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to move into. Yeah, other people could kind of fill that, that responsibility. And as you're saying, I think that that's really apparent a lot of the time inside of group dynamics. And a question that I would ask this person is, do the parents think that this is as big of a problem as you do? Mm-hmm. Because I think that that's a really fundamental question here. And I think that part of your advice earlier around growing inner resources included a kind of subtext of advice around our comfort with the limits of our influence Mm -hmm. and our comfort with having moments where we believe one thing is problematic that other people don't believe is problematic. And how do we engage with that? I'm not saying that's the case for this person, but I know that in some family dynamics that absolutely is the case where one person believes that something is a much larger issue than everyone else does. And sometimes we have to just learn to kind of shrug and go, you know, I'm the outlier here. I'm thinking too about, just to go back to that earlier point about ramping up resources Mm -hmm. for the scale of the challenge. And if this is a challenge in the family system, maybe people in the family system need to raise the level of what they're doing to deal with the situation. Mm. So for example, is it appropriate here to hold an intervention? of some kind, hypothetically, in which these two people that are problematic are invited to a situation and there are a bunch of other people sitting in the room, maybe with a therapist present, who say, we really need to talk with you. Or is it appropriate to change the ground rules and basically say, you're not welcome to the next family gathering if you yell at each other Mm -hmm. in the previous one? Or we're going to alternate back and forth, inviting one but not the other. That's what we're going to do as a family system. And we agree to that. It's, you know, in other words, there's something serious. Maybe you write them a letter. Maybe someone tries to talk with these two people in a gentle way. You try to figure out what to do, but you, you raise it up. You know, you raise the stakes and you, you bring more powerful methods to bear. Really something to think about. And then the last thing that strikes me is almost universal in human relationships, especially adult relationships, what do I owe you? Mm. What is my duty to you? Now, of course, the answers to that question are shaped by cultures and different cultures. For example, a very close friend of mine, and in fact, Forrest, your godfather, Bob Trug, a professor at Harvard Medical School, head of their bioethics program, has developed ethical thinking, and he and I have had a lot of conversations about this, in which sometimes we can look at situations like end-of-life care or when is it appropriate to harvest the organs, let's say, of someone who's dying or has died for the sake of others. We can look at those deep questions through the lens of classic Western individualism, which places a very high premium on individual autonomy and so forth. Or maybe we could look at these questions more through the lens of, in a generalized kind of way, Eastern views that are more communitarian in their cultural background that de-emphasize the rights of the individual relative to the sake of the greater good, for example. So the point is, I'm not trying to give a right answer here. I'm just saying there are different ways of looking at this. What do I owe you? What are my duties to you? And this gets really interesting. The person who wrote in spoke of being obligated And I want to say first that I have respect for different cultural approaches and and how people answer this question for themselves, but I really want to raise it. I really want to raise the question of 
beyond our fundamental, uh, I call it, as you know, we call it in our book, resilient unilateral virtue, beyond your own or distinct from your own unilateral virtue, your own code of integrity, your own deep felt sense of what it is to be a, to be a good person. Beyond that, what do you actually owe these people? Adult relationships have a strong element of reciprocity in them appropriately. I give to you, you give to me. If you treat me badly, I give you less. I disengage from you, unless there are other considerations, maybe. So do you really owe these people their impact on you? Do you owe them the opportunity to make you really upset? Do you owe them the opportunity to come in and just dump their reactions on other people, to rain on the parade of other other people, to ruin the event for other people? Do you really owe them that? Do you have an obligation to give them that? Do you have an obligation to care for them after their parents pass away and there's no longer financial support? Really? Well, if you feel you do, okay. But I would really raise that question. And most fundamentally, what do you owe yourself? My view, our highest duty actually is to the one being among all others we have the greatest impact over ourself, including our future self. Yeah, I think that those are all great points. As a kind of final thought, which may or may not be appropriate for this particular individual's experience, but which I think could be meaningful to the experience of people listening to this, including people currently raising kids. I grew up with a pretty big safety net, as safety nets go, outside of simply being a white straight male growing up in California. We grew up initially in a situation where I would say that there there were some financial pressures, but they were moderate. And as time went on, they grew smaller and smaller, particularly moderate relative to, you know, 90% of the world's population. And I think that as I've kind of moved through life, I've always sort of had the underlying feeling that it would all kind of work out. And part of that underlying feeling is the experience of, you know, if I failed, how bad would be the thing that would actually happen to me? Really not that bad. I think that this has upsides and downsides, frankly. The upside of this is that you can be very brave with the prospect of failure, which I think is fundamentally really good. I also think that there's an element of this experience that can actually be a little bit paralyzing and can prevent people from moving into real authentic change inside of their own lives because, frankly, they're not motivated by suffering, and suffering can be a powerful motivator. If in this particular example, there's been a dynamic inside of the family where these people get themselves into hot water over and over again, and they're bailed out in a variety of different ways by the family system, well, what's their actual incentive to change? Fair point. You know, and it it might really be pretty minimal, frankly. And I would just be really curious to see what happened if they frankly weren't bailed out. And would their response rise to the occasion or not? Now, of course, you might feel a sense of obligation to these people. They're a close part of your family system. There is a space for that. I think your last response covered all of that really appropriately. But I just do think that to return to what we were saying initially, Creating a vacuum that allows the other person to fill it with responsible action is certainly one way to approach questions like this. So well said. It's really true. 
Well, great. I think that that's enough for that question. We've spent a good kind of 15, 20 minutes on it. So I would like to move on to our next one. The next question has, again, to do with the series on who am I. It's a little bit more explicit this time around. It is, I enjoyed your episodes on narcissism and BPD, and it seemed to me that there's a lot of overlap between the two of them. What are some of the key differences? Well, as, as you say, there's a lot of overlap. And you remind me of this classic uh, from, I believe, Otto Kernberg in, I think, the 50s. It was titled, it's a psychoanalytically oriented book, Borderline Conditions and Pathological Narcissism. Mm, mm-hmm. The point being, which was kind of revelatory in the field at the, at the time, I've been told when I was in grad school, uh, but the point being that there's a lot of overlap between these two, right? So. I would kind of highlight a few things. First, being actively narcissistic or having a lot of narcissistic vulnerabilities. So maybe a person is not overtly arrogant or conceited or entitled, and yet, boy, are they sensitive to slights mm. or feeling devalued or, or not chosen, right? So that person. And then let's say different person who fulfills the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality or is pretty close to it. Uh, Both of them are forms of insecure attachment Mm. interpersonally. Both of them lack that internalized sense woven deep into oneself that one is secure in relationships with others even in imperfect relationships. But there's this underlying expectation that repair is possible and also a lot of underlying resources that have been based on internalization over the years, uh, as well as other things, but a lot of internal resources that can manage misattunements or disruptions, breaches of empathy, or the everyday devaluation minor criticisms, poo-pooing, a little bit of snark from time to time. That's pretty common in most relationships. So forms of insecure attachment from the get-go. Second, related to what I just said there, insufficient internal resources. It's normal to be unstable, and in that sense, and it's normal sometimes to feel reproachful or to cling and complain when you've been wounded is a preeminent feature of someone in the borderline spectrum, Mm. clinging complaint. It's also normal to, uh, you know, want others to be impressed by you. I feel that way, Uh, at least once in a while, right? Uh, (laughs) Maybe more often than once in a while. What? They gave me a one-star review on Amazon? What? Because the Kindle didn't download properly? What? That's normal. But we manage those normal slings and arrows of outrageous fortune through tapping into, as, as you've written about, internal resources. Well, someone who's genuinely narcissistic or narcissistically vulnerable or really genuinely borderline or on close to it on that spectrum, they don't have those internal self-soothing resources. Mm. Often the gates of hell open up, the pit opens, and they fall through when they're disrupted, for example, by the devaluation or the abandonment or rejection, even in normal ranges of other people, boom, the pit opens up inside 
and they can fall a long way before they land on any kind of coherent self-structure, often developmentally one, two, three, four years old. So that would be another major hallmark, I think, in terms of similarities. Maybe differences? Interestingly, and there's a lot of overlap here, but interestingly, people who are really narcissistic, they don't seem so unstable. There's more consistency in their presentation. Also, commonly in the history of someone who's acquired a borderline personality, in, in addition to whatever might be heritable, baked into their DNA, there's usually history of trauma. Mm-hmm. Often complex, severe, recurring trauma, especially in early childhood. So what's called complex PTSD very often is comorbid with, to use the fancy terminology, you know, travels alongside borderline personality disorder. That's not necessarily the case with someone who is narcissistic, even at the level of a narcissistic personality disorder. And it is also sometimes the case that people acquire narcissistic personalities because they were sort of whipsawed back and forth as kids Mm. between idealization, devaluation. Parents who say, oh, you're a genius. Why can't you get A's all the time? Right? It's up, down, up, down, up, down. That's a crazy maker. But it's not necessarily traumatic. It doesn't have abuse in it, you know, betrayal by important relational partners, relational figures in their life, such as parents. That's pretty common with BPD, borderline personality disorder. Another difference has to do with the underlying reason for what might look similar from the outside. So what might look similar for both kinds of people is a sense of entitlement Mm -hmm. that lands on you, let's say, as someone who's got to deal with them, right? So they seem entitled and they seem to present with a kind of claim on you, right? This maybe goes back to the first mailbag question we we talked about that has to do with what do we owe each other? Mm -hmm. So each of them in their own way, narcissist, borderline, are communicating, you owe me. You owe me praise, you owe me access, you owe me being a means to the end of the stability of my psychological structure. So it comes across as entitlement, but deep down inside, it has a different quality. Mm. From a narcissistic standpoint, it takes the form of something on the order of, you know, the brittle exterior ego self says, I'm super, I'm special. Of course, you should praise me. Of course, you should give me special privileges. It's because I'm so great. Don't you see it? I see it. Everyone else sees it. You owe me admiration. Okay. The source of it more from someone with a borderline disorder is the neediness of a young child. The claim that a young child appropriately puts on a parent, now a borderline adult is trying to put on other people. I'm so upset. I'm so dependent upon you. I'm your fill in the blank, your special boyfriend, girlfriend, parent, friend at work. My claim on you is not based on me being super. That's the narcissist basis. My claim on you is based on 
my fragility, my frailty, my neediness, my desperation. That's the fundamental basis for my claim on you. And it comes from a very different place. So to kind of wrap it up, when we're on the receiving end of someone who's borderline, we can often sense something poignant and touching in their appeals. And frankly, that which is poignant and touching and needy can unfortunately sometimes drag us into, due to our good intentions and our own warm heart, can drag us into complicated entanglements with people who are in the borderline spectrum that are eventually not good for ourselves and often not good for them either because it perpetuates their ways of being. We don't, through being that way, we don't create opportunities and frankly pressures for them to grow and rise and become more independent. When you're with someone who's more narcissistic, it doesn't have that poignant, heart-touching quality to it. It often feels more annoying, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that this is a person who's working you for admiration and approval and agreement and like-mindedness. That's a key word for someone who's narcissistic. They want like-mindedness. That's not such a word that you would use with someone who's more borderline. They just want you to feed them. Mm-hmm. Feed me. Yeah, great. I think that that's a wonderful breakdown of the primary differences between the two of them. If you want to learn more about some of the things to do about these conditions, we explored that in real depth on both of those episodes. Uh, I think the episode on borderline is actually one of the longer episodes we've ever done. We really kind of lived with that topic for a little while. I certainly learned a lot about it in the process of just listening to it. So those are great resources if you're interested in exploring more of that material. I think that that's a nice place to bring this episode to a close. So today we explored two different questions. The first had to do with kind of perpetuating problematic family systems. And the second had to do with the difference between narcissism and borderline. If you would like to submit a question to be answered in a future episode of the podcast, you are welcome to do so. You can do that through either the contact form on our website or by emailing contact at beingwellpodcast.com. I'll leave a link to the contact form in the description of today's episode. I'd also like to remind you about Dr. Rick Hansen's new Neurodharma online course. I believe that started really recently. If you're interested, it is still taking registrations. And if you'd like to learn more about the program, I will also include a link to that in the description of today's episode. Finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and leave a positive rating or review. It's really one of the best ways to help other people find it. So we'll be back next week with another episode, but until then, thanks for listening. 